Revelation 17 is where we'll be once more. You can go ahead and turn there. And uh, we began looking at this passage a couple weeks ago, and it's a very detailed passage, you know, strange, mysterious passage, a lot of interesting symbolism in this particular passage. And if you keep in mind that there's a break in the chronological action of the book as we come to Revelation chapter 17, we've seen this a couple of times in various places uh, in our study through the book. At this point in the study, we've been at the seventh, uh, the seventh trumpet judgment, which leads to the seven bowl judgments. And the seventh bowl judgment that's poured out represents the, the end, the consummation of God's judgment, God's wrath poured out on an unbelieving, rebellious world. Well, there's a break in the action. And, and, and really the seventh bold judgment describes God's final judgment on what is called Babylon the Great. And that's a subject that's introduced in the 16th chapter. The break in action happens at the end of the 16th chapter. And in chapters 17 and 18, John describes what he's, what he's referring to with Babylon the Great. What does this refer to? And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about how Babylon the Great is sort of symbolic of a global, one-world type of religion, type of government, sort of a pluralistic uh, syncretism of a culture and a religion and an economic system and a government that is sort of a mishmash and a global one at that. And in Babylon, all throughout Scripture, represents the city of man in rebellion against the authority of God. It begins in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. There are two cities mentioned more than any other. The, the, the foremost mentioned city in Scripture is Jerusalem, mentioned upwards of 800 times. But the second most mentioned city in the Bible is Babylon. And so Babylon was a real city. It was the head of the empire that Nebuchadnezzar had built. It was the city of Babylon where his headquarters were located. The Jews were carried off into Babylon in captivity. But Babylon has its genesis, its origin, with the Tower of Babel. Just after the days of the flood, man, though man had been uh, commanded to repopulate the earth and to scatter throughout the earth, man decides to unify in rebellion against the creator and begins to build a tower. And that tower becomes symbolic of what man can do apart from God, what man can do in his attempt to be God. And that's what the Tower of Babel was really all about. And you know, the scripture says that God came down, confused the language there at Babel. And, and ultimately, the purposes of God prevail. And everybody goes out from there and the earth begins to be populated. But Babel and Babylon represents all throughout scripture man's attempt at self-governance, man's attempt at unity, 
man's attempt to deify himself in rebellion against God. And all of that's going to come to a head one day in the final world system that will be in place uh, before Jesus comes and judges it. And that's what we're being presented with here in Revelation chapter 17 and into chapter 18. All right, now, there's a religious element that's associated with Babylon. And so that's why this question is there on the screen and in your notes, what role ultimately will religion play in the last days? Because religion's gonna play a very prominent role, a crucial role in the last days. False religion, that is. See, man's very religious. Man has always been religious. Even those who say they're not religious, well, they're religious because they, they make something ultimate in their life. And so much of the ideology, the secular ideology of the day, well, it's a religious ideology even if it doesn't go by those terms. It's religious because man is attempting to place ultimate value in something, and that's what makes it so very religious. Now, maybe you've heard the phrase religious pluralism at some point in your life. You've come across that phrase. You've maybe heard that referenced in a sermon or the news. More than likely, it's not a phrase that we'd use on a regular basis. So what is it that we're talking about when we speak of religious pluralism? Well, it's the belief that people who embrace different and even conflicting religious views can seek to live in harmony with one another while celebrating and affirming the other religion's distinctiveness. That's what we mean by religious pluralism. Those who buy into pluralism would reject the notion that there is one right religion. But instead, pluralism says that truth can be found in every religion and, and no religion has a corner on the truth. And so a person who's pluralistic in their thinking would see the claim of Jesus in John 14, 6, where he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. A pluralist would say, eh, that doesn't mean what you Christians say it means. Or a pluralist might say, well, Jesus was a product of his own day and a very strict monotheism of Judaism and that kind of thing. It's not an enlightened view of the world. Now, does that not just kind of describe the the politically correct culture of our day, just this religious pluralistic society where, you know, you speak your truth, I'll speak my truth, but now don't you dare tell me that what I believe is wrong, which the irony of that, it's okay for them to tell me that that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, kind of doesn't make sense, does it? It's illogical. All right, but why is this an issue? Because listen, ultimately religious pluralism, is, it falls apart. On the surface, to some folks, it might sound like a reasonable expectation for people living in 2022, but below the surface, it's a diabolical ideology because every religion tells a different story when it comes to answering ultimate questions, questions of origin. How did the world come into existence? Well, we know what the scripture says. God created, God spoke the universe into existence. What's the meaning of life? Well, we know that we've been made in the image of God. The Bible says that we've been made to reflect the glory of God. We've been made for that purpose. You know, the story of secularism tells a totally different story. 
That life ultimately has no meaning, no purpose. We're here by chance or accident. So here's the thing. Those two conflicting ideas cannot both be true at the same time. You understand that? But pluralism wants to try to say, well, no, all truth is relative and that kind of thing. And folks, who decides who is God? Pluralism wants to put man at the center of the universe. And the Word of God tells me that man is not at the center of the universe. The Word of God tells me that it's all about God, that He's the ultimate source of authority. And we bow to Him. And so that's why pluralism and this idea, the ideas of, of the day, you can see where all of this is leading and how this is going to feed into a particular system that's going to be characteristic of the last days. And that's what we come to here in Revelation chapter 17. Now, again, you'll remember back in chapters 15 and 16, uh, we're given description of those final plagues that will be poured out on the world toward the end of the tribulation period. And the seven bold judgments uh, represent seven final plagues that will sort of complete the wrath of God before uh, ushering in the return of the Lord Jesus. So again, we've come to this chronological break here. Now chapters 17 and 18 describe why and how the wrath of God is going to be poured out on Babylon, which is that pluralistic syncretism, this, this idea of unifying the world with man enshrined as his own God, man's world in rebellion against the God of the universe. And that's what Babylon represents here, all right? So um, you, you probably have seen these bumper stickers that say um, uh, coexist. Have y'all seen those bumper stickers? They've got all these religions. That's pluralism. You know, it's just every, the, the coexist that's spelled out represented by a symbol of, you know, major world religion. I actually saw this one I thought was a lot better. Contradict. Because uh, they can't all be true. And that's certainly the truth. But you see, what, what's being described here in Revelation 17 is sort of this pluralistic system of the Antichrist and again, this is a tool of the evil one to want to blind people as to the nature of truth. All right, so again, chapters 17 and 18 describe Babylon, which is the world system under the influence of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and how ultimately it's going to come to future destruction. Now, two Wednesday nights ago, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 17 and considered what Babylon is and all that it represents. And we looked at the symbolism there, and I referred to this as Babylon exposed. So why don't we read those verses, <clears throat> beginning with verse 1. The Scripture says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads, ten horns, 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. It was something that intrigued him. It was something that was perplexing to him. So it's clear that within this passage, John is is being shown this symbolic vision, the symbols of which describe a system. And, And John has shown all of this. This angelic messenger carries him away in the spirit, gives him a vision where he sees a woman sitting on this beast And there's all kinds of blasphemous names on this particular beast. And when you look at the description of the woman there, it's obvious this is not a woman of noble character. This is not Mary Poppins. You know, this is is symbolic of a false ideological system, religious system. And we'll later see that it's even an economic system that's holding people mesmerized. People have bought into the seduction of a system. The attractive, seductive lies of the world is what's being referred to here, all right? So this is Babylon. And that's not something new to John. You know, I I mentioned a moment ago, Babylon, it goes all the way back to Genesis. And, And again, I won't get into all of that again. And so really the story of history and the story of the Bible has been this story of two conflicting cities. Babylon, which represents the best that man can do on his own, and Jerusalem, which represents the people of God, the city of God. And as the people of God, ultimately, where does our citizenship reside? The heavenly Jerusalem. We're we're a part of the family of God. And yet, you know, this is why pilgrim language is applied to those of us who are believers because, you know, if you feel uncomfortable in the world, it's because you're not of the world. And believers ought to never be comfortable in the world. If we're comfortable in the world, then it may be a sign that we need to do a spiritual checkup in our own lives. Because the world and the world system is at odds with God and His truth And that's why God's people always stick out like sore thumbs. Now, ultimately, our enemy is not the people of the world. We understand that the people of the world are blind as to the truth. They're without the knowledge of God. They're in need of rescue. They're in need of salvation. But the enemy is the evil one who's blinded people to the truth, who wants to keep them in the dark and keep them from coming to the truth. So that's why the church is, again, it ought to be like an agitator. We've got a gospel mission. We've got a mandate to take the gospel and preach the truth and open blinded eyes. And we're dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit for all of that. So mystery Babylon, this is the world's system in rebellion against God. And and she's described as being a promiscuous prostitute. Verse 4 says she's arrayed in purple, scarlet, adorned with all of this jewelry, holding in her hand a golden chalice full of abominations. And notice the emphasis on sexual immorality. Pornea is the word in Greek, same word we get the word pornographic from. 
describes fornication. So it's a sordid description. And it seems that John is describing this sinful culture that has tried to find religious justification as an excuse or license for its rebellion. But now that culture's come under judgment. This is the mystery of iniquity as it's reached full expression in the society of man. Here you have pluralism, materialism, syncretism in its final form before the Lord Jesus returns in judgment. All right, so that's Babylon exposed, okay? So we looked at the history, the ancestry, and all of that that we considered a couple weeks ago. Now, the second thing that I want you to notice is an explanation. Babylon explained. Because you'll notice that beginning with verse 7, this angelic messenger offers to John an explanation for the symbolism that he's shown. Okay? So look at verse 7. The angel says to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, time out here. That description of the beast ought to remind you of the same description of the beast that was given in chapter 13, which is descriptive of the Antichrist, the government of the Antichrist, the system of the Antichrist. So the idea is here you have this, this mystery Babylon symbolized by this woman who is riding this scarlet beast. All right, I'll come back to that in just a moment. So verse 9 says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast, and these are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now look at this, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those with Him are called faithful or called chosen. They're called, they're chosen, and they're faithful. So there you have a snapshot of what chapter 19 is going to describe in detail with what happens when the King of kings and the Lord of lords returns and destroys Antichrist and his government. Okay, so, so let's talk a little bit about Babylon as it's explained here. All right, so the angel is explaining what's meant by the woman and the beast which carries her. And we've seen how Revelation is saturated with the symbolic, and it's interesting that the symbol of this woman receives more attention than any other symbol in the entire book. And the imagery of the woman sitting on the beast this is surrounded by more clues than literally any other symbol. 
And so that tells me that this is very important to really the overall meaning of John's vision here. Okay, so there are multiple clues that we can start piecing together to try to come to an understanding of what's being explained here. All right, so if we just kind of go back for a little bit, the first clue, you want to jot these in the margins of your notes, you can, I don't have it on the screen. The first clue is John's descriptive language such as that of a prostitute, okay? So the use of this symbol with all of these immoral overtones, this is something that's pointing to obvious sin. I mean, I don't want to be overly graphic tonight, but prostitution, this is the sale of sex. It's taking the gift which God intended to be exclusive to the covenant relationship of marriage, and it's exploiting it for selfish, sordid gain. To use stronger language, a whore. This is someone who takes and profanes what is sacred. In fact, that's the way that it's translated in older translations. Prostitution, this is the ultimate example of unfaithful behavior. And so this woman... Uh, this depicts unfaithfulness to God on the part of someone who's claiming relationship to him. How do we know that? Well, again, look at how John has used the symbols elsewhere. You go back to chapter 12, there's the imagery of a woman, and the woman is symbolic of faithful Israel, persecuted by the dragon. And so here you have this same imagery of a woman, albeit the language of promiscuity. And unfaithfulness is, is applied. That's not the first time in Revelation that this symbolism has been expressed. If you remember way back from chapter 2, we saw this with the Lord's words to the church at Thyatira. In chapter 2, verse 20, this is the words of Jesus to a compromised church. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So in other words, there was a corrupting influence within the church there that adopted elements of the unbelieving culture and therefore perverted and distorted the truth. <laughs> That's what pluralism will do, by the way. It'll pick and choose parts of Christianity that it likes while rejecting parts that it doesn't like. But what you're left with is an idolatrous system. You're left with the God of your own making. When you come to the Bible, you say, well, I reject this, and, but I like that. Or if you use this kind of language, well, my God would never do this. Well, you're, you're exactly right. You're talking about your God. You're worshiping your own God. That's not the God of the Bible you're talking about. It's the very thing that the second commandment God tells us not to do. Don't make a graven image. What is a graven image? It's coming up with your own idea of God and worshiping that own idea. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping your own little God, G-O-D, little G. And this is something that's going to be characteristic of the last days. This is what we're talking about when, when the Bible talks about apostate Christianity, First uh, Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Second Timothy chapter 3, understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will become lovers of themselves and money. They'll be 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now listen to this. Here's the cherry on top of the, the icing. Having the appearance of religion but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness but denying the power thereof. <laughs> so you've got people who are ultimately worshiping themselves but there's this thin veneer of religion. Mm. Don't tell me people ain't religious. Even people who, everybody's religious. Second Timothy chapter four, the time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. So all of this just describes the mystery of lawlessness which is already at work in the world that's going to come to head in the last days. It's the very thing that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he says that the coming of the lawless one will be preceded by a falling away. Apostasy is the word, apostasy. Not, not just a wholesale rejection of Christianity. No, listen, so much of this pluralistic, anti-Christian thinking of the last days will want to sign the Lord's name to its religious ideas and system. But those ideas won't be biblical. It won't be God's word. It won't be God's truth. That's what, that's what apostasy really is. It's somebody turning away from the truth. Adopting their own standard and signing God's name to it. And in many ways, that's exactly what it's going to be like in the last days. Which, by the way, you know, the devil, he really isn't that concerned with what lie or what particular function or form that that lie takes that a person embraces just so long as they embrace it. He's not so much concerned if a person is blinded by the false religion of Islam or Mormonism or secularism. It's not so much, he's, he's fine content with somebody worshiping a false God as he is with someone declaring that there is no God because both of those persons have ultimately bought into the same lie. Have you ever noticed that the only thing that's ultimately not tolerated in today's culture is biblical Christianity? It's the truth. Why is that? Why is there such animosity toward biblical Christianity? It's because the evil one hates it. He, and, he, and he wants to stir up antagonism and persecution of it so as to try to stamp it out. All right, so this idea that we often miss is that there will be a false church in the last days. And this is what is represented by Mystery Babylon. You say, well, what about the true church? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad that I, listen, I believe the Bible teaches that the true church is going to be raptured before the tribulation begins. I believe all these ideas will be at work in the world. They're at, they're at work in the world now, men and women. But the time is coming when the true church of the Lord Jesus is going to be raptured out of here. And yet, 
there will be a false church left behind. Institutionalized Christianity, the form of religion without the power and the substance. (laughs) There could be all kinds of lies and all kinds of alternative explanations perhaps for why you know, what the rapture was, and you, you, you can imagine. Use your imagination to, to think about what some of those false ideas would be. You say, well, how do you, why do you believe that the church, the true church is going to be raptured? Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a clue, and this is something I've never seen until I was studying out this passage. Verse 14, when Jesus comes, look at this, the beast And his system is making war on the lamb. The lamb will conquer him, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him. (laughs) If he comes back, he's not coming back by himself. Who's coming back with him? His saints, his church, the resurrected bride of Christ were coming back with him when he returns. Man, is that not awesome? And those with him are the called, chosen, and faithful. All right, so our next clue from this chapter is that the woman seems to have this worldwide multicultural influence, okay? If we want to figure out her identity, look at, look at the influence. Verse 1 says she's seated on many waters. Verse 15 explains the meaning of that. The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, So she represents an ideology that has a global reach and has been exported exported out to the whole world as sort of a false great commission. (laughs) So the sea of humanity gives rise to this system which is pluralistic, this amalgamation of religious, political, economic ideas and endeavors. It's a global system. It involves the major power brokers of the day. It's a system whose authority comes from the people. Give the people what they want. And the currency of this system is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. That's all that the world has to offer. And those who want it will drink it up. They'll become intoxicated with it. So the world's bought into this this ideology. This is what the spirit of Babylon represents. A third clue is the fact that the woman is seated upon a scarlet beast, and so this indicates some type of relationship. And if that beast is representative of the government of the Antichrist, there's some type of a relationship here between this, this woman or ideology and the beast, which is the governmental power. So you've got this marriage of some type of ideology with governmental power. And you look at tyrants in history, and you, you think about Hitler. You can't think of Hitler without, at the same time, thinking of Nazi ideology, right? So tyrants and dictators, they always have some type of ideology that they use to confound and deceive the masses. Same thing is going to be true with the Antichrist in the last days. And so this beast, again, it's the same beast mentioned in chapter 13. The idea is that the Antichrist will somehow support this wretched prostitute and her vile, immoral system. So using his political, economic, social clout, the beast will help the woman become powerful and go global. 
She'll pollute the world with her ideas in full support of the Antichrist. And again, all that's symbolic, but, but think about ideas. And, and, and by the way, think about the means to spread ideas quickly, globally now, that never existed before. I mean, you can, you can, you can start a movement in Twitter. Everybody's celebrating the fact that Elon Musk has, you know, bought Twitter. $44 billion dollars which he had in his back pocket, evidently, bought Twitter. I wish he'd buy Walmart and hire some more cash, cashiers. But. <laughs> or buy McDonald's and fix the milkshake machines. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. I lost my train of thought. Just the idea that, you know, with social media, there's this, this, this means of being able to take ideas and make those ideas go viral, global. And people can become indoctrinated by hashtag movements and ideas that, that begin, they get popularized. So you take this and you, you, you marry that to political power and you could see how the government of the Antichrist could have his propaganda machine in full force. And the whole earth becomes intoxicated with the wine of the woman's immorality. So another clue, she's adorned with all of this wealth and extravagance. Verse four describes it. She's decked out with jewelry, which means there's this outward attraction to her that appeals to the senses. And her influence reaches kings and rulers and leads them into sin. So the image here is that of spiritual adultery and idolatry. Danny Aiken, I like what he says about this. He says the lust for power, material possessions, sex, pleasure, this has intoxicated the world. No one under the sun has escaped her alluring enticements. The, the uh, prostitute has captivated their hearts and taken over their lives. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, this has become their gods. And then he says this, we must be careful because it's not hard to imagine that you and I will wake up on that day and realize, if we're not careful, that we've all become Babylonians. If all we live for is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the very thing that the world lives for, don't be surprised when you wake up and you're Babylonian to the core. The golden cup she's holding in her hand. This is something else that's attractive to the eye. It, it appears to be a thing of value, even having the appearance of being a utensil in service to God. But within the cup is every form of abomination or impurity. So the idea here, it looks like one thing on the outside, but on the inside it's something rotten, entirely different. Ray Steadman points out that this cup even appears to be a counterfeit cup of communion. What's the cup of communion? Well, it's symbolized throughout the, the New Testament, the, the communion cup, which is symbolic of the blood of the Lord Jesus and the fact that we've been brought into fellowship with God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cup of the Lord, it's associated with the truth of God. Those who've been brought into fellowship and right relationship with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, listen to what Paul says. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons at the same time. 
So in a sense, this pluralistic, this is, this is religion, man's religion, the religious excuse to try to justify immoral behavior, but it's going to come under judgment because you can't drink the Lord's cup and the devil's cup at the same time. Then you got another clue. It's the inscription found on the prostitute's forehead, name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, which means she's not alone in her immorality, but she's become the source of other evils. She has spiritual offspring who also spread their lies. And that word mystery, this is a word that implies uh, something deeper than what appears on the surface. Babylon is the symbol of idolatry, religious syncretism, pluralistic ideas which masquerade as something true and noble, all in the name of being ecumenical, all in the name of being open-minded. This is mankind in its attempt at unity apart from the truth. You know you can't have unity apart from the truth? You know the world desperately wants unity, doesn't it? You think about division, deep-seated division, political divisions. Think about borders, countries at war. And the world's leaders, they're talking about something to unify the world. We know that you can't have unity apart from the truth. And sometimes people say, well, you know, you, you, you can't be so narrow-minded when it comes to truth and preaching the Bible and that kind of thing and the exclusivity of Christ. That's never going to unify the world. Listen to me. I'd absolutely rather be divided by truth than unified by a lie. But the world doesn't understand that. The world wants unity, but it doesn't want truth. There can only be unity where there is truth. So all of this is man's attempt to try to unify. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. That's what Babylon the Great is all about. Man unifying without God at the center. And listen, folks, it will not stand. It will indeed fall. Verse 9 says the imagery here calls for a mind with wisdom and thought. And there are two final clues as to the identity of mystery Babylon. The beast which carries her is described, again, the very same way as the Antichrist, chapter 13, so we know these are one and the same. The whole world marvels at the beast. They'll come to place their faith in the beast and worship the beast. And all of this calls for wisdom. Sophia, that's the word in Greek. It refers to insight. It means the wise and discerning will understand the truth of what's being communicated here. When the culture becomes gripped by ideas and movements, we as the people of God need to be discerning and not get caught up in it all the world says politics are ultimate, money is ultimate, pleasure is ultimate, and Babylon represents the religious rationale behind these ultimate pursuits. But we're discerning as the people of God because we know that that's not what life's all about. Aren't you grateful that life is not all about that? I'm telling you, I'm thankful to God that, that life is found in Jesus Christ. Christ is my life, and that means doesn't matter how much money I have in my bank account. Doesn't matter what people around me are saying or doing. The state of the economy and the state of the political landscape. Listen, I may have my opinions and you may have yours, but ultimately our life isn't found in that stuff, is it? My life is in Christ. And that's something that can never be taken from me. 
And once you get there, <laughs> that's the key to joy in your life and confident living. Verse 9 says, the seven heads of the beast. Now, this is where it gets a little, the details. I ain't going to get lost in the weeds here. I've read all these books and these scholars, and every one of them say something different about it. So I'm just going to, let's just, here's what the Bible says, and we'll let the Lord sort it all out. The seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the prostitute is seated. Now, you know that from antiquity, Rome was famously known as the city of the seven hills. And verse 18 says, the woman is identified with the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, in John's day, that was Rome, the capital of the world. So you add all these clues together. You're able to discern that this prostitute, this is symbolic of some type of false religious system married to political power, and as we'll discover in chapter 18, also economic power, that will be one type of system in the last days. An ideology that the whole world will embrace and the ultimate face of it will be the Antichrist. Now notice, notice this is not going to last. Now notice how evil is kind of going to turn on itself. Where you have the, the government of the Antichrist and you know, the, the symbolic language of hills, the symbolic language of the horns, which represent ten kings who have not yet result, received royal power. Just to summarize all of that, you know, and again, you, you lay this side by side with what the, 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 the book of Daniel teaches. The final world government, world empire is going to be some type of system that's a revived Rome a confederation of Western nations that somehow come together, 10 of which ultimately will surrender their power and jurisdiction and authority to the Antichrist. And that's how the Antichrist is going to come to power and be the head of this system in the last days. All right? And so they, verse 13 says they, they hand over their power, they hand over their authority to the beast. They're of one mind to do that, and they're going to make war on the Lamb. Okay, now look at verse 16 though. The ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. You say, well, hold on. I thought you said that they were in cahoots. <laughs> that they were married together in this system. The woman's riding the beast early in the chapter and here you're saying that the beast will hate the prostitute? Yeah, because what's going to happen in the last days, God is going to turn evil on itself. It's like a snake eating its own tail. And that's what the judgment of God in the last days is going to consist of. Evil is self-destructive. We tend to overlook that. And you believe what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, where God gives people over to their own sinful consequences. This is the judgment of God. <laughs> now think about that. So where it's all ultimately going to lead... Let me just give you the pictures here, if you want just in your mind, what John in his mind perhaps saw with the prostitute seated on the back of this beast. Now look, you pay close attention to the imagery here and how that fits with the fourth beast of Daniel 7 described as being like a leopard with wings. Which interestingly enough, I don't know if you saw the news, but just, uh, I guess it was the end of last year this statue was found outside the United Nations in New York. Pretty interesting, huh? 
Now, there are a bunch of other statues out there, but the fact that here you have this leopard with rainbow colors, which you see what that's become symbolic of, immorality, in the name of religion now. Pluralism, syncretism, materialism, unite the world. This is the mantra of our times. But Babylon's going to be exterminated. And that's what verses 16, 17, and 18 ultimately say. And listen, ultimately who's behind that extermination? Not Terminex. (laughs) Verse 17, God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So that means that as wicked and sinister and diabolical and rebellious as it appears on the ground, ultimately who is still in charge? The God of heaven. The God of heaven. Evil. Evil is not running amok, men and women. Out of control. And God is not in heaven wringing his hands over the condition of the world. No, let me tell you, God is sovereign. He's in control. And he's bringing it to a conclusion. And further destruction in those details is described in chapter 18. And we'll get to that later on. But before I finish tonight, let me just give you this quickly. You come to a strange passage like this. You know, preacher, do you have any practical truth to maybe help us from such a tough passage? Well, let me give you just a few practical, helpful points to remember as you go home tonight. First of all, I think we should resist the temptation to merge Christianity with the prevailing culture. That's something I learned from these chapters. You know, I've heard it said that the greatest challenge facing a Christian, it's not persecution from the world, it's seduction by the world. We think persecution is the worst thing we have to face. No, the biggest threat that that our church faces and that you as an individual Christian man or woman faces, it's seduction from the world. Buying into the lies of the world and being discipled by the world. We're all being discipled. The question is, who's the one speaking into your life and discipling you? Who's the one speaking into the minds and the hearts and lives of our children? Who's teaching our children sexual ethics? Who's teaching our children, you know, right from wrong? Are we exported this out to the world? Well, listen, if, if that's the, what we're doing, don't be surprised when they come home like Babylonians or Romans in their thinking and in their worldview. So we gotta resist that urge. And then we should always remember that evil is self-destructive and ultimately Babylon is destined to fall. Defying God never leads to freedom, but it always enslaves. Don't buy into the lies of the evil one. And then one final thing, we should always rejoice that Jesus will win the war. In fact, he's already won the war through his death and resurrection and he's ruling and reigning and one day he's coming and all of that's going to be made sight as he establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And guess what? We as his people participate in his victory. And so don't put your hopes in man. And that's all the world is left with when it doesn't have the truth of Jesus. Now, folks, listen to me. Listen, people, 
are longing and desperate to believe something. I know there's a lot of people who've rejected Jesus, but listen, so many have yet to hear of Jesus. Maybe they've rejected a form of what they think Christianity is, but they've never had someone like me or you explain to them the gospel. And to tell them why the good news is such good news, they've never had the gospel shared with them by somebody motivated by the love of God and the grace of God. I wonder how many of those people are in your neighborhood. How many of those people may be at your workplace Or how many of those people may be in your own family or your own circle of influence? Folks, let's introduce them to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It ought to be a mission impetus that a text like this ought to have on my life and your life. If Babylon is destined to fall and the kingdom of Christ is eternal, let's leverage all of our resources and leverage our time and our relationships to take the gospel to people who need Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray tonight? Lord, we love you tonight and we're so thankful by the truth of your word. There's a lot we don't understand, Lord, especially as it comes to these symbolic references but Lord the principles there and those who were discerning were able to understand what the word of God says and Lord I pray Lord that we would leave from here as faithful disciples of Jesus determined Lord to go against the cultural grain to stand out to faithfully serve God and to use our time and our energy and our resources, Lord, to share Jesus with others, people who desperately need good news. If this is what the world's coming to, Lord, God help us to make the most of the time that we have while we have it. I think about those in my family and or those in my neighborhood. Mm. Lord, use us to be missionaries for Jesus' sake. Amen.